you have your Bibles, I hope you will open to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. I wonder if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever had a person in your life who's given you far more opportunities than you deserved? Someone who is so patient with you, even when you know they were frustrated with you. I can think of more examples than I care to admit. I think my life has been a long series of people being more patient with me than I deserve, and I guess I could count all of you among those. Let me give you just one particular example that came to mind this week of how I've been shown patience. I was in college, I had a job working overnight. During the summer when school wasn't in session, I had some time and so I was looking for a way to make extra money during the day. A friend of mine told me he knew a guy named Jeff, a custom woodworker who was looking for some help. He needed someone who had woodworking experience who could serve as an assistant in his shop. Do I have woodworking experience? Well, in sixth grade, I took a class in woodworking and I made some clocks, it went okay. I needed a job, so I went to go see Jeff. And I told him the truth. I've done some woodworking in the past. I told him I didn't know everything, but I was confident that with a little guidance, a little, I'm a quick learner, give me a chance, I can, I'm your guy. I guess I was convincing, he hired me. So I showed up the first day and he asked me what tools I brought. None, I owned none. That was probably the first indication to him that maybe I wasn't quite as qualified as I had let on. But nevertheless, he let me stay and he started showing me some things and I showed up every day. I worked hard, I tried hard, and I was a lousy woodworker. For some reason, Jeff was patient, at least on the outside. We worked through the end of the summer and we came to a point where he had the opportunity to part ways cleanly. I was going back to school, my hours would change. This was his out. But instead, he told me I could come in after school and keep working. So we worked it out. I would come in after school, work for a few hours, and then I would go to the job that I would work overnight. So I wasn't sleeping a lot in those days. I kept showing up, and I didn't get any better. At the same time, Jeff's business was not growing the way he had hoped. Money was tight. For some reason, he kept letting me come and he kept paying me even when I knew he wasn't always paying himself. I got a check every week. And there's no doubt in my mind, there's some days I cost him more money by my mistakes than he made in profit. Maybe not a great business decision, but that's the way it went. For a few years, he kept me around, I worked whenever I could. And sometimes I felt like I was in the way, but honestly, I needed the job. I kept at it. I kept trying to get better. I never really did. He was patient. I still do not understand why. He was patient with my repeated mistakes. He was even patient with me when I put my thumb through a table saw and he had to pick up the ER bill. That's a whole other story. What's the point? I've had the experience of having a person who's given me far more opportunities than I deserved. 
the incredible patience of God is infinitely greater. We have a God who's patient towards people who are slow to trust him. If you've been with us through our study of Mark, then you'll know that there's been a reoccurring theme up to this point in the gospel. Jesus had called these 12 men, his disciples, to come and to be his closest friends and his followers. So they have gone with him and they have seen it all. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've even got the behind the scenes explanations of what the parables meant. They saw more miracles, heard more teaching, had more access to Jesus than anyone else. But what we've continued to see, and what Mark has shown us time and time again, is that the disciples continue to have a hard time really believing who Jesus is. And they struggle to trust him. So as we read through the Gospel of Mark, I think it's right for us to wonder, how could they be so dull? How could they be so slow to trust him? To trust that he will keep them safe in a storm. To trust that he will provide for them when they're hungry. To trust that he knows what he's doing. Do you ever wonder how the disciples could lack trust after all they'd seen? Have you ever wondered why you're so slow to trust after all you've seen? As I spent time in Mark chapter 8 this week, I've been blown away once again with how patient God is with us, even when we do not deserve it. He's patient when we're slow to trust him. And yet at the same time, what we see in Mark chapter 8 is that it is foolish for us to remain in unbelief. And so we'll see these two things that may seem contradictory, but they're both true. This text serves as a warning that if we remain in unbelief, we are in great danger. It's also a reminder of how merciful and patient God is with us in our slowness to believe. We'll consider both that warning and that encouragement this morning. So Mark chapter 8. You may be nervous to see that we're trying to take on 21 verses. I tried to break it up. It all goes together. So... We'll do our best. Mark chapter 8. Hope you'll follow along as I read. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And Jesus sent them away, and immediately he got into a boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Dalmanutha. 
The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread with them, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Now, as we read those first 10 verses, you may have had a sense of deja vu. I think we've already heard this story. And you're right, kind of. Back in Mark chapter 6, we did hear a very similar story. We read of Jesus feeding a large crowd with just a little bit of food. And in that case, it was 5,000 people fed with just five loaves of bread and two fish. We've seen a similar story before. Not only is it similar in what happens, but it's also very similar in the way Mark tells the story. And these similarities, because the stories are so similar and because the retelling of the stories are so similar, it's led some to suggest that there were not actually two feedings, but instead this is a literary device. It happened once, and Mark writes about it in order to prove a point. And then later in the book, he changes a couple of details and tells the same miracle again, not trying to be deceptive, but just trying to use the same illustration to accomplish a different purpose. So that's the suggestion, that it's one event used two different times by Mark to make two different points. And this is a, a relatively common consideration, especially among scholars, but I'll say on the front end, it's one that I reject. It's true there are a lot of similarities between the events, but it's also true there's a lot of differences. And I don't think that's Mark's creative changes. So we believe that on one occasion, Jesus fed 5,000 people plus women and children, maybe upwards of 15,000 people, which is five pieces of bread and two fish. And when he fed them, the Bible tells us that everyone was satisfied. And then his disciples went around and they picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. And then on another occasion, what we see here in Mark 8 is that Jesus feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves and just a few fish. And once again, we see that everyone was satisfied. And afterwards, the disciples pick up leftovers, this time filling seven baskets. Two similar yet separate events. Both of them take place in a desolate place 
we're told. Both of them, we see people in need. In both cases, we're told of the compassion of Christ and that he cares not only for their spiritual condition, but also for their physical needs. That's particularly clear in this story. Jesus wants them to be fed. In both cases, we see that Jesus shows gratitude for the Father. He blesses the food and then passes it out. So there are differences. And I believe that Jesus had specific reasons for doing two very similar miracles. And that Mark, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had specific reasons for sharing both of these very similar miracles. And I want to share just two reasons why I think Mark has given us, within two chapters, these two very similar miracle stories. One's explicit in the text and one's more subtle. We'll start with the one that's more subtle. Subtle but important. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you know that Mark's had a lot to say about geography. So I've done a lot of this and tried to give you a perspective of where we are. Jesus has been moving around a lot. And what you may remember is that when Jesus fed the 5,000, they were on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you've been with us, that may bring up to mind, that's the, the Jewish region. That Jesus was among his, his people, the Jews, and that's where he fed these 5,000 people. On that occasion, there was 12 baskets of leftovers. And, and I suggested when we walked through that passage that that may be a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. That Jesus has come to be the true shepherd for his people. Yet they didn't recognize him. And we've continued to see their rejection of him. Now as we come to Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds another crowd, this time 4,000 people. And this time he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Who lives over there? Gentiles. He's in a different region. I think this is a tag on what we've spent a fair amount of time talking about over the last couple of weeks. That Jesus goes into the region of the Gentiles in part to show that he has come not only for the Jews, but also the Gentiles. He's not come only to feed the Jews, but he has come to make salvation available to people of every tribe and of every nation. The gospel is for all. Now, some have suggested this, and we can hold this loosely, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Some have suggested that the reason Jesus uses seven loaves and the reason there are seven baskets collected is because seven completes, signifies completeness or fullness. This miracle shows the fullness of salvation that the gospel is going to all nations. Now, that numerology, that's, we have no explicit mention of that, but it's interesting to consider. I think it's the first reason Mark includes this miracle. Jesus performed this miracle among the Jews, and now he is expanding the gospel. He has come not only to be the shepherd of the people of Israel, but the gospel is to be spread to all people. But I think the main reason that Jesus performed this miracle and that Mark records it is to reveal the unbelief and the dullness of faith among the disciples. And I think it's recorded so that we can see that, and also we can see how Jesus deals with their unbelief. We see the first indication of their dull faith in verse 4. He tells the disciples, I can't send these people away. They need to be fed. Do you see what the disciples say in verse 4? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, 
This verse is the reason that a lot of people say this could not possibly be a repeat. Because if they had truly been there and seen Jesus feed up to 15,000 people with just one little boy's lunch, then there's no way they would say this now. There's no way they would look at Jesus and say, how could this be? That's the argument against these being two separate miracles. But for me, it's actually the strongest argument for it being two separate miracles. Because I think what Mark, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is pushing us to see is how quickly we forget. This is the way our sinful hearts work. That even when we have seen God's power and his faithfulness in the past, we can still question his care and compassion in the present. Let me say that again. That might be one of the more important things we take from this text this morning. I wonder if it's true of you. That even when you've seen God's power and faithfulness in the past, you can still question his care and compassion in the present. Most of us are guilty, aren't we? How often we question God's ability to provide, even when we see and he is faithful over and over and over again. And this is a recurring theme. We see it throughout the scriptures. The forgetfulness of the people of God. It's a theme in the Old Testament. Remember what happened when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt? Remember that process? Ten plagues, these incredible miracles. They march out of Egypt, taking things with them in triumph. They get no farther than the Red Sea before they start questioning God's goodness and his plan. And they direct their frustration at Moses. So we read in Exodus 14, they say to Moses, is it because there was no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away into the wilderness to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How quickly they've forgotten. The psalmist talks about the same situation in Psalm 106. He says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, and they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. But they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet God saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through the desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the water covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. And we pause at the end of verse 12 and then we read verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel but they had a wanton craving in the desert. They put God to the test in the wilderness. How quickly we forget. Here we see a people who had seen so much from the hand of God, yet they are so forgetful. And this is just the first of many, many, many times in Scripture we see this pattern repeated. God shows his faithfulness. God shows his power. And five minutes later, the people are rebelling against him. We see it here with the disciples. 
After all they'd seen, they still questioned Jesus. They had forgotten that he's the one who can feed masses out of a small lunch. And that's what he does again here. The disciples are forgetful. How could one feed all these people in the wilderness? But Jesus shows his power. He feeds these 4,000 with just seven loaves and a few fish. Once again, reminding us that with Jesus, anything is possible. And then there's a transition. Verse 10, Mark gives us some more geography. And I think we need to continue to pay attention to the geography. Mark tells us that immediately after performing the miracle, Jesus leaves the Decapolis. He's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He leaves that. And we're told in verse 10, they immediately get in the boat and they go to the district of Dalmanutha, which was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So they head back into the Jewish region. And it shouldn't, remind, it shouldn't surprise us that when he gets there, he's met by none other than the Pharisees. Remember two weeks ago, we said he left that area primarily to get away from the antagonism of the Pharisees, but now he comes back and they are the first to greet him. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Without going too deep into the weeds, let's just cut to the chase of what's happening here. Of course, the Pharisees have seen his miracles. There's no question about what he's done. And there's no secret about their intent. They're not coming and saying, hey, just, just give us one more and we're in. No, they're asking for something different than what he's already done. Granted, he has raised people from the dead. Now they say, give us a sign from heaven. What are they asking for? We've seen what you can do. We believe in God. If you are who you say you are, tell God himself to give us a sign. Then we'll believe. The irony and blasphemy of the situation is that he is God. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 2 in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's sad, it's ironic, it's blasphemous that these men would, men would stand before Jesus and demand proof from God. Reminds me of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16. Remember, it's a story where Lazarus is in hell, but he has the ability to communicate with Abraham and he's concerned for his family who's still on earth. He doesn't want them to end up where he is. It's a sobering story. So he asks Abraham to send someone to his family to tell them and to show them a sign. Abraham responds in Luke 16, 31. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The Pharisees demand a sign, but they will never be satisfied. What we see here is yet another display of how Jesus is rejected by his own people. And we see his response there in verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. 
And here we see a glimpse again to the heart of God expressed in Jesus. As he hears this, these men, he knows what he's done. He knows what they've seen. He knows their intentions. It says he sighs deeply or he groans in his spirit. We saw this last week as well. The groaning of Jesus that I, I think is equated with his grief over their unbelief. He knows their hearts are hardened. He knows they will not believe. And Jesus is not aloof to that. He feels the weight of it. Yet he responds and he tells them, no sign will be given to this generation. Does that mean no miracles? No, he does miracles. There's more, he's going to rise from the dead. But he's not going to grant them what they have asked for. And even the way he says it's reminiscent of the Old Testament. I won't give a sign to this generation. We think about the Old Testament, how often God said, this generation has lost their opportunity because of their unbelief. Now, one of the reasons we keep going is because all of this passage goes together. We see as Jesus now gets back in the boat and again leaves the Jewish region and goes back across the sea. So he started east of the Sea of Galilee. Then Jesus sails over to the western side, to the Jewish side. He's confronted by the Pharisees. Once again, they express their unbelief. And then he leaves again. And I think Mark records this back and forth as an indication of the changing relationship between Jesus and the people of Israel. They continue to reject him, and their rejection leads to a new age in the history of salvation. The gospel going to all people. There's a lot we could say about that interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, but I think the real point, how this all ties together, becomes more clear in the next section. Because now Jesus and his disciples are back in the boat. Significant things happen in that boat, don't they? We've had several stories of them in that boat in the Sea of Galilee. They're headed back across and listen to this interaction between Christ and his disciples. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. At this point, I think it's clear who's on the boat we've got 13 men and I would argue we have proof that none of them brought their wives because they end up in the middle of the sea with no plan for their next meal I need my wife if not for her I end up in the middle of the sea and I don't have enough food for everybody I think what we have here is proof that Mark is telling a true story why would this be recorded why would Peter tell a story about they get out in the middle of the sea and they have no bread? But this is the, this is what happens and in, in the inspiration of the Spirit, it's recorded for us. And what we see is that Jesus uses the situation, this lack of bread to confront his disciples and to warn them. Our translation says he cautions them. He says, watch out, beware. Let me say this. Anytime Jesus speaks, we should listen. But how much closer should we listen when God in flesh says, watch out, 
Beware. Two words in the original language. Both strong words. Listen. We should be on the edge of our seats. When God says beware, we should pay attention. Watch out for what? Beware of what? Well, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. What does that mean? You've convinced me we need to pay attention to this. What does it mean? Let's just break it down. What is leaven? Some of you could give me a really great explanation. I just went to Google. I read the first thing. It's a substance you put into bread dough to make it rise. Right? And the most common leavening agent is yeast. Some translations say yeast here. But what you should also know is that leaven is used throughout the scriptures as a symbol. Usually leaven represents evil. So you put a little bit of leaven in something and it affects the composition of the whole. You remember that Paul uses this illustration in 1 Corinthians, right? There's sin in the church. And he warns the church, if you let this sin remain, it'll corrupt the whole. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul's warning the church, if you allow this sin to remain, it will impact everybody. So that's the symbolism of leaven, usually representing evil. He warns them against the leaven of the Pharisees and against the leaven of Herod. What do these have in common? The Pharisees and Herod. Remember the one who kills John the Baptist? We saw that back in chapter 6, 4. Both of them remain in unbelief. Both of them demonstrate their hypocrisy. Both of them stand opposed to Christ. Jesus warns the disciples, beware of unbelief. Beware of failing to see Jesus for who he really is. Beware of hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles, yet never truly recognize him as the source of salvation. It's a rebuke, it's a warning. I think we also see here the care of Jesus for his disciples. He sees their hard-heartedness. He sees their dullness of faith. But he's not done with them. He's still with them. He's still trying to teach them. They're so forgetful. We saw that here. Verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? They ask the question, even though they've seen it before, they know how this works. They're the ones who walked around and passed out the bread. They're the ones who picked up the leftovers. And then not long later, they say, how could this be done? And if it seems impossible to you that they could be so forgetful, I will encourage you again to consider your own heart. I think we are all guilty at times of not trusting God's sovereignty and his plan and his promises to care for us. Jesus sees the disciples' dullness of faith and he warns them, don't get swept away like the Pharisees. Don't end up in the same boat as Herod. Beware of unbelief. Unfortunately, we see that they don't understand. Verse 16. If you read it straight through, it seems like it's two stories that don't fit together. They don't have any bread. Jesus warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the 
of Herod. And then verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. And if you're a parent, maybe you understand this scenario. You're trying to have a serious conversation with your kid. Something's coming. You need to be prepared. Let me tell you what's going to happen so you're ready. And you're looking them in the eye, and they're looking you in the eye, and you're serious. And all of a sudden they say, what's for supper? That's what we have here. Jesus issuing this significant warning to his disciples, and they're discussing, well, we don't have enough bread. All they can think about is their next meal. And at this point, Jesus drops the metaphor, and he speaks plainly. Verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, of what? Of the fact that they just don't get it, that they're not hearing Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see and having ears to hear, do you not hear and see? Do you not remember? I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. How many baskets full of pieces did you take up? Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets did you pick up? Seven. Do you not yet understand? Here we see Jesus speaking more plainly than he has ever spoken to them about their unbelief up to this point. He recognizes the condition of their hearts and he wants them to see what they have not seen. He wants them to hear what they have not yet heard. He wants them to remember what he's been revealed. I would love just to spend time going through each one of those questions because each one of them connects to somewhere else in Scripture. Several of them are references to Old Testament um, stories. Can I just give you one? Ezekiel 12. Son of man, God speaking to the prophet, he says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. They have eyes to see, but see not. They have ears to hear, but they hear not. They are a rebellious house. Jesus says to his disciples, are you like them? Are you like the nation of Israel who didn't see and didn't hear? It's a persistent problem. Throughout the scriptures, we read of those who had the opportunity to hear the word of God. They saw the work of God. And for all the seeing and for all the hearing, they still did not believe. This has been the repeated refrain. Remember chapter 4. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Yet the disciples don't listen. Jesus is pointing out that they may be among those who have not heard with ears of faith. He asks, do you remember? Another question that's reminiscent of the nation of Israel. Over and over we read of the forgetfulness of the people of God. And I wonder if we are among them. Jesus gives examples. I fed 5,000. You were there, right? You picked up the leftovers. How many baskets? And they, 12. And then just like a day ago, 4,000 people fed. How many baskets? Seven. You were there. Do you not understand? Do you not understand it's about more than bread? Do you not understand that I came to do more than feed mouths? Do you not understand that I am the true bread? The bread of life? that I satisfy forever and that I can always be trusted. 
I think Jesus is making clear that they're in danger. They're in danger of being like so many before them who failed to recognize the faithfulness and provision of God. He's pointing to their lack of faith and warning them. And he asks them, and I must ask us, do we understand? Do we understand who he is and do we trust him? With that in mind, I want to end our conversation with three things. Three things and we're done. Two warnings and one encouragement. We'll take them in that order so we don't end with a warning. The first warning is this, and it should not be a surprise. A warning that you can come near to Jesus and be familiar with him and yet never truly believe him as the one you need. We see this with the crowds, right? They came to Jesus, they saw his power, they saw the miracles, they saw that he could heal. They believed in an aspect of who he was, but they never truly knew him. And now Jesus is pushing his disciples to see that he's more than a teacher. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than a political leader. He is the true bread, and it's only in him that they can be saved. But salvation does not come through a casual relationship with Jesus. It doesn't come through church membership. It doesn't come because of the family you were born in. It doesn't come because you're kind. Do all those things. But we're only saved when we truly repent of our sins and place our faith in the finished work of Jesus. And while all those things are important, we must repent and believe. And I know we say these kinds of things often, but they must not go unsaid. What we see in this text is that Jesus is warning these 12 men who have been so close to him. You have not truly believed. That's the first warning. That you can come near to Jesus and be familiar with Jesus and yet never truly believe and trust him as the one you need. And then the second warning. And this is for those of us who are Christians. Those of us who trusted in Jesus for salvation, we can still be guilty of failing to trust him in our day-to-day lives. You may be here this morning and you're a Christian. You have repented and believed, but you still trust, you struggle to trust Jesus with tomorrow. You don't trust his sovereign care that he will provide. So you struggle with worry and with anxiety and with fear. And sometimes it's suffocating. I wonder how many of us are sitting in the boat with Jesus who can feed thousands and we're worried about our next meal. We are so quick to forget that God is near and that he cares. I should ask this question because it's November 1st. How are you doing as we head towards the election? Are you increasingly nervous? Do you fear the results? How will you respond if the election does not go the way you would hope? What I hope you recognize is that part of trusting Jesus means remembering that whatever happens, Tuesday does not catch Jesus by surprise. When you wake up on Wednesday morning, he will still be on the throne. He will still be reigning. And you can still trust him. So I want to encourage you this morning not to be like the disciples asking on Wednesday, what happened? How can one person feed all these people? 
No, may our assessment of the situation be assessment of faith. That's the second warning. That we could know him but not trust him in our practical day-to-day lives. Now an encouragement as we close. Hear this and hopefully it'll lighten you of some of the burden. Our God is long-suffering and patient with us in the midst of our doubts and failures. You remember the words of God to Moses after the people of Israel had stumbled time and time again? Remember how Jesus identified himself? Excuse me, God. Jesus. He identifies himself in Exodus 34. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And in large part, the Bible is a long story of God's long-suffering and patience in the midst of a forgetful and doubting people. We see it here in our text. Jesus does rebuke the disciples for their unbelief. He warns them about the danger of it. But isn't a warning compassion? And isn't a warning long-suffering? The Bible tells us that Jesus disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're here this morning consumed by doubt, but you're hearing this and you're convicted, know that God forgives. He continues to pursue. He continues to reveal himself to us. And if you've been wandering in doubt, slow to trust him, dull of hearing, hear that he is merciful and gracious and ready to forgive all who call on him. You do not have to remain in your sin. You do not have to remain in your doubt. You don't have to keep sinking in your worries and fears. Come to him. He will forgive. And he will hold you fast. I am still thankful today for the way Jeff showed me so much patience when I worked for him. Way more opportunities than I deserved. And on an infinitely greater scale, I'm thankful to our God who deals gently with us in our weakness. It's my prayer that his kindness would lead us to repentance and that our faith would be increased and we would trust him more fully.